0: This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship across ethnic, racial, and partisan lines. Tonight's program features renowned theater director Peter Sellers. The Children of Heracles, a classic from the Greek theater, is Mr. Sellers' newest project. He explores the play's relevance to contemporary society and gives his thoughts on immigration, free speech, and the question of whether American citizens should hold themselves up to a higher standard of accountability. Zokolo is proud to present an evening with Peter Sellers. As
1: we talk about pain, let's talk about it among friends, which is, of course, is usually the only way you can talk about something painful. I think that's one of the biggest issues about why the arts were invented was of course a way to discuss something that's difficult to bring up that's hard to mention that even inside the family no one ever mentions and what does it take to create the atmosphere in which something that nobody wants to mention can be spoken of meaningfully not in a tabloid manner not in an exploitative manner not even in a finger-pointing manner because As you know from your own family, the hardest thing is the person sitting at the table who hasn't said anything for two years. And what does it take for that person to feel that they can come forward and speak and be recognized and that it's worth speaking and that there's somebody there to speak with who's really listening. And I think we really do forget in our talk about media all the time that communication actually only functions minimum two directions. One is not adequate. As you know from your loved one, who you will go home with tonight, one way communication is not a successful prospect. The question is reciprocity. Where are the structures for reciprocity? Where are the ways in which not only is someone speaking, but is someone listening? And in what way is listening quite active? And it's a listening that gives people permission to say something they would never dare to say otherwise. So we can begin to get to a place. Where instead of saying the things we're saying to people we don't really know, which is why you always have to be polite and you always have to cover and you always have to never actually let anybody know what you're going through. What does it mean to actually speak to someone you care about, about something you can't tell anyone else? Where the act of communication begins to become honest and in some way real, in some way personal, in some way committed and the first step in the healing process. So it's not simply reportage. It's not simply observing from outside because the reality is we're all inside. And right now, the amount of pain that's going on in the world Mm -hmm. that is being treated as if there's no pain involved, the way journalists, in particular television cameramen, are trained, which is this illusion of objectivity. And so you're there in in the Sudan, and you have your camera trained on somebody who has nothing to eat. And then you go back to the Intercontinental Hotel and have your steak. So what are you seeing through that camera? In what way are you looking in a way that it's not possible to walk away from that scene, but you really have to enter it? Or are you looking in a way that you can walk away from that scene? What is the quality of looking? For me, the two issues are really in Hindu aesthetics. It's the gaze of love, where when you look at the person you love, the way you look at them makes them more beautiful at that moment. And the evil eye, which is just to look at somebody in the wrong way is to curse them. In every world, culture, and religion, Jesus says if you look at somebody and say, you fool, it is worse than having murdered them and you will burn in hell forever. That act of violence that's in our society right now, the malevolent gaze, the condescending gaze, the looking at somebody in such a way that a murder takes place. We know that really well. What is the opposite, which is the gaze of love, which is the act of transformation itself, the act of sharing, the act of mutual recognition, the act of nobody's life will be the same because of this crisis. It's not just your life will change, my life will also have to change. And that's welcome. We're dealing in a situation which culturally, you know, we have these beautiful Hyatt hotels all over the world, so that I can be in Shanghai tomorrow and stay in a hotel that's just like something at home so I don't have to change when I go to China. Now, in the 12th century, if you're going to go to China, you'd say to your friends, I'm leaving for China, see you in 20 years. and a different person would return. And the whole point of going to China was that you would change. This notion that we ourselves don't want to change, but we're going to look at the world that's in the middle of changing, is of course one of the issues about commercial journalism which is meant to show you that we don't have to change while we're looking at someone else whose life is being torn apart so that transformation is the only choice. And I think this question of realizing that the transformation has to be equal, that these events are in our lives because they're in our lives. And what does that mean about recognizing what's happening in the world not as happening in the world but as directly also happening to us. And I think we live in this strange buffer zone in America where because of a certain material comfort you don't realize actually that everything in the world does affect you directly. In many cases, the journalists were there. The stories that they filed were not able to be published. This whole question of a kind of new medieval period (laughs) where the news has to circulate on internet and in late night comedy shows because there is no other outlet. And where the official marketplace of ideas, quote unquote, actually doesn't even function as a marketplace anymore, that's very, very real. At the same time, I don't want to just criticize that. I want to actually say how hard it is to speak honestly about something that is going on right now Mm -hmm. in its real dimensionality. I'm trying to make a project over this next decade with artists and journalists, because we're the communicators in a society. And in fact, the way people are voting the way people are even understanding the world around them, has to do with what kind of information they're receiving. What is inside that information, what isn't? What is missing? What is the dimension that is missing? One of the hardest things right now is we're getting our news in a very sanitized manner because, of course, the cameraman is not supposed to have a nervous breakdown while filming. Whereas it would be better if they did. If they actually did acknowledge what they were in front of. And we could watch not simply with that sense that the camera is fine, but in fact that the eye that's taking those things in also finds this unbearable. And this whole idea that the camera is quote-unquote objective and that we're receiving our news quote-unquote objectively is one of the whole reasons we're not receiving the very history of our time, because all of the heat has been removed, all of the threat has been removed, all of the possibility and hope has also been removed. And we're in this strange statistical no-man's land where the news just carries on and meanwhile people continue to die and starve to death and be rounded up here in America in the wealthiest nation in the history of the planet. So what does it take to add that little extra something to the news? that allows people to realize that there are no observers and that we are all participants. And that the 20th century was about spectatorship. That's over with. You're in it. You're not watching it. You're in it. As Madge used to say on the Palmolive commercials, you are soaking in it. And actually, it is the quality of your life, the moral quality of your life. It's the moral and spiritual energy in your life, or it's the absence of moral and spiritual energy in your life. Mm -hmm. I would just emphasize two things. Trying to work with journalists and artists together because for one thing, most artists frequently don't really know what they're talking about, but they definitely have opinions. Journalism is a wonderful tonic for that. (laughs) You know, you're supposed to have actually gone there, talked to people, see something, and not just have your own opinions to go on. (laughs) Meanwhile, uh, journalists are encouraged to report on a very narrow bandwidth of human experience. And of course, human experience is happening in a very wide bandwidth. And what artists have permission to do is also report about, as Samuel Beckett said, that which is unspeakable, that which you have difficulty even finding words for. But it's a depth of feeling, and it's in fact that depth of feeling and that spiritual resonance that is, again, first the motivating factor that says to all of us, this can't go on any longer, and then asks us to search ourselves for the solution, which, of course, turns out to be the finest moment of all of our lives which we're denying ourselves in our passivity. That sense that the true depth of despair is actually necessary to deal with where the possibility for change lies and where our hope is actually placed. So our hope is not placed stupidly as kind of a vacant optimism, but quite the opposite. That it is when things, well, let me put it another way. Nelson Mandela, 25 years on Robben Island. Well, yes, longer. Cultivation of hope what it means and I think you know if you've traveled to parts of the world where people don't have anything to eat and where the political situation is extremely dire they're not committing suicide here where there's enough to eat people are committing suicide a lot life is unbearable they need drugs and they need a lot to drink what is that telling you for me it's really this question of trying to work in a way that these diverging worlds finally meet the world that is trying to commit suicide and the world where things are so dire that it's essential to go on living with a maximum level of commitment. Since we're talking about the Children of Heracles, i just described that project. After 9-11 when everybody, of course, was in a state of shock on all sides, which again is either a closure or an opening. I, of course, try and make sure in every one of my productions that there's a really profound shock, because for me that shock is the moment of opening. It's the moment where business as usual just has to stop. And everybody has to say, well, what else could we do? Where is the alternative? What have we been missing? What have we not been noticing? And of course, one of the things that September 11th you would think would motivate is a need to say, who have we not been talking to? And it's really urgent to deepen our levels of communication. And I think that's one of the biggest issues right now in our lifetime. Violence is the result of lack of communication. If someone feels you are not listening to them and the only way they can get your attention is to put a bomb in your car, that is what they will do. Artists and journalists, as the communicators, are the only people who are indeed charged with creating the alternatives to violence, which are open channels of communication where it is possible for people to say something that is difficult to say and nobody needs to die. And for me, that's the single greatest need for security right now is to invest in communication and open reciprocal forums where painful and difficult things have a place and a way to be said where no one has to die in order to say them, which is what we do in the arts. So one of the biggest issues is trying to meet people on their own terms. That's very, very hard. And I think one of the difficulties of American journalism And what gets put on the air and what gets put into the newspaper is most things are made for this mythical white Middle America audience so they can see the world in their terms, which means you've never had to think like a Chinese person ever. You've never actually had to see the world and think in the mind and through the eyes of an African person because Africa has always been spoken about to you by white people who share your point of view. And so Americans just haven't gotten much practice thinking another way and looking through other eyes. And that is costly because finally at the end of the day, we all have to look through other eyes and think another way. The Children of Heracles was put together after September 11th as a way of responding to if the United States of America decides that everyone now in the world is a potential enemy first, and then maybe a friend, But of course, by then, they don't want to be your friend. Is there a way to go at it from the other side? We made a program about immigration and about refugees. This country, of course, was founded by immigrants and refugees. And that this country would now turn against immigrants and refugees so virulently, with the laws now on the books, the sweeps that are now taking place in this city, I think we're arriving at the clinical definition of schizophrenia, attacking your own origins unable to cope with your own identity and smashing the mirror. Children of Heracles is a play written by Euripides 25 centuries ago. The ancient Greeks they invented theater as a part of the government because they knew if there was going to be democracy that people actually had to have practice hearing other points of view. As you know in ancient Athens the citizens, people who voted, were men. What's very interesting about The Athenian theater is, in fact, every citizen, every person who could vote was required to attend. In a little amphitheater like this, the city council would pay for your ticket if you couldn't afford it. All those men sitting out there, the subject of every play, were women, children, and foreigners. The people who could not speak in the Senate were the people who spoke in the theater. And every voter had to see the world through their eyes. And the Greeks knew that that was the only way democracy could be saved and maintained and developed. So our job is to put forward those voices so that democracy can move forward. We've now done this uh, in eight countries. The evening begins with a respected journalist inviting onto the stage, refugees themselves and people in the refugee and immigration business, for example, In Austria, the performances were in the Austrian parliament. It was the first time in the history of the Austrian parliament that a Muslim woman had a microphone. The guest the opening night was the Minister of the Interior for the state of Austria, the man in charge of immigration policy, and we had him meet three African refugees who are waiting for papers in the streets of Vienna. The very top of the system meets the very bottom of the system, nothing in between. And the question is, what is the conversation? Every night, the first hour of the evening was that kind of encounter. These are people whose lives are inextricably bound, but who have never had a real conversation. What would it take for a real conversation between those two people? One of the first things it took was dinner. Inviting those people to have dinner, quietly, with nobody looking in, and just allowing the first human thing to happen between people whose relationship has been subhuman. Break bread together start with a basis of total equality because that's finally what we can do in the arts is make a place where people on this stage for this evening are completely equal. It's very important to put these images in front of people because you can't imagine an alternative until you first see it which is why theater is devised because you have to first see something and then begin to imagine it. In Vienna these levels of conversation what it meant for the interior minister to talk to the one person he couldn't lie to someone who'd been 10 years in a kenyan refugee camp who wasn't accepting political slogans and who knew the reality of life in the streets for an immigrant this first hour of the evening was very powerful for the audience the audience gets involved halfway through they give the interior minister a very difficult time i will say he was a member of the conservative party and i applaud the fact that he came because that is the beginning of democracy dialogue and because so many of our government operatives and functionaries are now operating in an anti-democratic manner in the world's largest democracies, it was very impressive. Then the audience has coffee, then we meet back in the theater again and do a play from 2,500 years ago, The Church of Heracles by Euripides, which offers a reflective poetic space for everything that happened in the first hour of the evening to be imagined across centuries, across generations, across all of history and ask ourselves larger questions about where we stand in that flow of history. So we can get beyond today's headlines and yesterday's editorial and the kind of ruckus and haste and panic of day-to-day news and just say, wait a minute, could we please take a long view and see where we fit in this huge spectrum of human history? What is our contribution? And at the end of the evening after the play, which is quite overwhelming, and I should mention the play has on stage in it, Twenty-six refugee children who sit on stage all night in the center of the stage looking directly at the audience. In each case in each of the countries, we got these young people from detention centers. In most cases, they were what are called unaccompanied minors, young people who were taken off of airplanes, held in detention centers, and are now living without parents in detention centers, where their prospects are very limited. not allowed to work, they're not allowed to earn money. There's a long list of things they're not allowed to do. Rehearsals were very intense because the young refugees and immigrants who as you know the current game and immigration Control all over the world for the immigration interview is to catch somebody making a mistake in their story And then you can deport them so yes people don't tell their story or tell a version of their story or whatever It's very complicated what you say because we've told people from all over the world We're only accepting one story and so everyone has to learn to tell the story that we will accept that gets them into our country. But what you get is the real story as soon as rehearsals begin, because in the play, one of the young refugee women offers her life for the rest of her family, which is, in fact, something that many immigrants and refugees understand really well, is someone had to be sacrificed. We're here, but that's because someone else made a sacrifice. Not everyone made it. And that scene where that young woman says goodbye to her family for the last time is where The kids who are working on the show just can't. That first night of rehearsal, they can't make it through that. They're crying and they have to leave the room. And then a little later, we stage the actual human sacrifice where we cut her body open and blood pours out. And then we wrap her dead body in plastic. And of course, for a young woman from Sri Lanka or a young man from Congo, they can't bear to see that and they can't bear to be in the room. And they're severely traumatized by it. And then the next day, we hear from the refugee center, from the detention center, uh, these young people should not be participating. This is too much for them. It's psychologically damaging. And that night, those same young people come back two hours early because they want to be in the room. Because this is the first experience since they've arrived in this new country where finally somebody is meeting them at the level of their own emotion and not just saying, oh yeah, it'll be okay but actually dealing with the level of emotion they're carrying with them every day and the truth of what they've seen and what they've experienced finally can be shared and not just carried alone by that child. I told you the performances in Vienna were in the parliament and the refugees took over the parliament restaurant and at the end of the night had cooked dinner for everyone. And so the audience and the kids and the refugees and the guest speakers all went and had dinner together in the parliament restaurant at the end of the performance. And trying to work with food more and more in every project because that dinner is the beginning of the first new society. Those kids could be at any table and were. Audience members sought them out, ate together, talked together, people exchanged phone numbers. That was the beginning of sharing and that was the beginning of reaching across the barriers, because in Vienna, most Austrian people would have no idea how to begin a conversation with a young African man at a bus stop. And here, they could talk freely. And we got something going that actually took off in all directions and was a free space, and a shared space, and a democratic space, which is really hard to achieve. You know, politicians are banking on, how do we say it, You know, you have your better self, and you have your worst self. And we're now in a period where our worst self is being appealed to at every moment, and not only flattered, but egged on, put into a state of panic, fear, jealousy. We also have better selves, and it's amazing when your better self is appealed to. And I have to say, in the city of Vienna, we were working with these different refugee organizations that are struggling, and these kids who are in, when you visit these refugee camps, they're horrifying. And so all the organizations together decided, what we try and do is make a summer camp for those kids for this summer. And so we asked the audiences every night in the show to contribute money for the summer camp. And the Viennese audiences across five performances of the Children of Heracles in the Parliament contributed 12,000 euros. And then the head of the Vienna Festival said, this is a good idea, let's just keep going, and opened it to all of the performances in the Vienna Festival and 26,000 euros were raised from the citizens of Vienna for a summer camp for those refugee kids. You know, that's something the arts does. That's what it is about, is speaking to people's better selves. And people want their better self spoken to. They want their better self to have a better life than their worst self. They would prefer to live with their better self. And I think that's really one of the hugest issues right now of being alive in this period of such depth of cynicism and such willingness to believe the worst about everyone is can we go at that another way and open ourselves and let our vulnerability actually be matched by someone else's vulnerability and our generosity be matched by someone else's generosity. The other angle for me, of course, is you have to deal with this fear. This is a show now that we made a couple years ago but is finally coming to America and I'm so excited Again, it was made to deal with early days of Homeland Security and the build-up into the war. At that time, we hadn't actually invaded Iraq, but oddly, the show hasn't dated, and I made it about the invasion of Afghanistan. I took the last text of Antonin Artaud, who was a French surrealist poet who died in 1947. He spent the last nine years of his life in insane asylums, receiving 57 electroshock treatments. The last year of his life, when he was finally released, he was shaking uncontrollably, had no more teeth, his hair was falling out, and he was hallucinating and terrifyingly lucid, both at the same time, and experiencing everything through enormous amounts of pain. And as he wrote in my notebook, you will never understand what I am trying to say to you until you have experienced the amount of pain that I am experiencing. His last text he wrote for French radio. They had invited distinguished poets. They made the mistake of inviting him and he wrote this text in 1947 saying that in the future well that in America there is a giant program to collect sperm samples and breed a new generation of soldiers so that they can be American soldiers all over the world so that America can dominate all industrial and commercial production of every kind. And in the future, there will be no more food, no more water, and no more air but artificial substitutes designed by Americans. Now, he wrote this in 1947, and, of course, it's written by a madman coming out of nine years in an insane asylum. Of course, America was the liberating nation. You couldn't say those things about the American army. This was immediately censored and was never broadcast, but of course became one of the most famous broadcasts never broadcast, because of course the beauty of censorship is it makes the legend, makes sure that something will be perpetuated forever, whereas if it had just been broadcast, it might disappear. The text goes on to discuss blood, bones, and and deals at the most basic level with violence, in a way of pure open terror. I have staged this text as a US Pentagon press conference about the Afghan war. It's delivered by John Malpede of LAPD Los Angeles Poverty Department, the great John Malpede, as Rear Admiral John Stuffelbeam. We didn't make that name up, that's the real guy, John Stuffelbeam, from the Pentagon briefing room, which is the very place where all pain is denied, where there is no acknowledgement of pain, where there is no acknowledgement of suffering, where everything is clean, surgical, happy news. And to actually have this text about bones, blood, and about terror, personal terror, about the pain in your body, exactly from the very organization that is in denial about pain, is quite shattering. I use footage from the Afghan war provided by CNN, but I slow it way, 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 way down. Most news you're seeing in 5-second, 10-second, 15-second images. Now ask yourself what kind of emotional response or even intellectual r- response you have in 15 seconds. It's limited. And then I scraped away the soundtrack and replaced it with music by Osvaldo Golioff so that these images suddenly breathe a very different way. And you can be with them a very different way. And they enter your consciousness a very different way. And they enter your body a very different way. Then the piece ends with a poem by June Jordan, Kissing God Goodbye, which she wrote at the time of Operation Rescue in Boston when the anti-abortion activists murdered the people working in the clinics in Boston. And June's question was, God told you to do this? Which God would that be? And the poem is, Which God are you talking about? And she calls the poem Kissing God Goodbye because it's an amazing statement for the 21st century of what we need to take forward and what we need to leave behind. It's shocking and then liberating. My hope again in making art at this time in history where again things are constantly summed up, summarized and reduced is to make something that is irreducible, that can't be summed up that can't be shrunk, that is just as complicated, difficult, and amazing as what we're trying to deal with.
0: This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, an evening with Peter Sellers. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the New LA, present this monthly lecture series. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, and the Latino Weekly, Zocalo is made possible by the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. Thanks for joining us.